Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. I'm your host, James Molesworth, and in episode 12 of Straight Talk, we're covering California Pinot Noir. My interview with Santa Barbara winemaker Greg Burrett was just too much fun not to share the whole thing, so here it is in all its wine geeky glory. If you're looking for more California Pinot content, episode 12 also includes my interview with winemaker Marco Bear, and Dr. Vinny explains buying clones for us. But without any further ado, enjoy my interview with Brewer Clifton's Greg Brewer. Our next guest is an L.A. native and former French teacher at UC Santa Barbara who started his own winery back in 1996. And today his Pinot Noir and Chardonnay production is based solely on the Santa Rita Hills AVA down in Santa Barbara County. The winery has cracked our top 10 in our annual top 100 list and consistently been among the elite of California Pinot Noir producers. Greg Brewer, welcome to the Straight Talk Podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you on. It's your 28th vintage this year coming up at Brewer Clifton, and you had a few years before that you were working as an intern. You've essentially grown up in the Santa Barbara wine community and been one of its drivers, um, so congratulations on that. But Thank why don't you. you just locate Santa Barbara and the Santa Rita Hills ABA for our listeners, and then tell us what it is about Santa Rita Hills terroir that makes it such a distinctive area for Pinot. Of course. Yeah, Santa Barbara is is misunderstood in, in, in some ways in that when you're in the town of Santa Barbara, you're facing south on the Pacific. And people think about resorts and it's very gentle and, you know, walking on the beach and holding hands and picnics and everything else, which is totally the case. When you travel kind of up the coast, however, to where wine country is and where Santa Rita Hills is located, it's still the ocean, obviously, but it's a, a different voice of the Pacific. It's, it's not... Um, it's not quite as calm. It's a little more savage. It's a little more kind of ferocious and carnal up there around Point Conception, it's called. So we have cold Alaska water. And very atypically, our valley is oriented east to west, right? So it's, it's almost like a mouth kind of respiring and breathing in that ocean influence day in and day out, the fog, the cooling and everything else. So, you know, the immediate knee jerk is, oh, Santa Barbara, it's warm, it's resort, it's great. But actually, it's a lot cooler and more contemplative and moody in a lot of ways um, because of that orientation and because of the voice of the Pacific up there. When we toured the uh, vineyards down there last summer, you and I, I remember we were looking at some of your, uh, your vines, and you said when you plant for the first time, you always think single vineyard. Now, there's a proliferation of single vineyard bottlings out there, and you do several. Talk about that process and what is it that goes into not only just picking the piece of land, but thinking this is going to be a single vineyard, and does it always work out? Yeah, so it's interesting. In, in the single vineyard world, there are different approaches. You know, in, in our case, it's really this kind of, you know, neutral representation of what's there, kind of almost irrespective of the outcome, right? It's not about, you know, oh, let's taste through and assess and see if this merits that type of singularity. It's more trusting that it will offer its own singular voice. And so when we elect to plant a piece of land, like knowing that it will contribute something different. It's, it's very much like different instruments in an, in an orchestra or different voices in a choir. Like each one brings something to the equation. And it's not about better, worse, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not about that. It, it's just, it's individual, right? And so that's really, that's the motivation for us. And there's, you know, it's a relatively small appellation, California standards wise. It's about eight miles long, four miles tall. But within that, there's such... 
such a difference in kind of the voice of the wine because of the aspect, the orientation towards the sea, the soil profile. You know, it's all very beachy and, and lunar in a lot of ways. And, and the wines are so expressive. And when we plant, you know, it, the differentiation of place is also sometimes amplified by us, by different clonal selections and that, that type of thing to kind of to further kind of embolden the difference of site as well. What are the differences as you run east to west through the valley? Are there soil changes? Is it temperature change? What are the sort of the defining characteristics when you're looking around for vineyard sites there? Well, it's interesting. In general, you know, the, the further you are from the ocean, we typically climb almost a full degree Fahrenheit for every mile, um, which is quite significant. So that's that's the general kind of starting point in the Appalachian. And then in Santa Rita, there are two corridors that, that come off the ocean. There's one along what's called Santa Rosa Road and the other, which is my normal habitat, called Highway 246. And, you know, one side has a bit more kind of like sandy clay loam and that type of thing in the soil. Where we are, it's almost like a high plain behind the hills. It's a little bit lighter. It's a lot of beach sand blown over from Lompoc. So, you know, but again, it, it's all about how exposed and vulnerable you are to the wind, right? So, if you're kind of nestled in behind a little ridge or something, it, it can get a touch warmer. But if you're like straight up, like facing the ocean and, and kind of facing the west, it's, you know, the, the cold and the wind is, is no joke out there. And are you in a specific sector that you like to concentrate on or do you spread your stuff out? Well, a little bit of both. You know, we spread ourselves out, but there, there are common things that have been the most attractive to us as far as sight. So because the environment is so kind of hostile, ultimately, you know, we do look for little tiny pockets within that have a modicum of protection. And it's something actually I read um, from Helen Turley 20 plus years ago, I think, about, you know, extreme Sonoma Coast or like these very extreme places. There's a point where you can be too extreme, <laughs> where right. stuff just doesn't ripen. And especially because we employ stems and different stuff we do, you know, the clusters need to be intact. You know, they can't be too beaten up. Otherwise, it can go too far. So kind of nestled in little kind of little pockets within the extremity is always the most attractive for us. You mentioned stems there, and I want to talk about that with you because you use them and you use neutral oak, which is an interesting combination. Generally, when I talk to folks about Pinot, I say that the opposite ends of the spectrum are the very bracing kind of minerally savory style wines that you get from the cool coastal climate areas. And then the, the richer fruit driven ones that you would get from the warmer sites. But I feel like your wines kind of straddle that. Am I accurate or are you trying to find a midpoint or what is it in your approach of using stems, neutral oak, and your wines are very expressive that you're aiming for? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a huge compliment. So for us, you know, the employment of stems has always been part of our vernacular, right, from the very, very beginning. And, and I think for us, you know, Santa Rita Pinot has a tendency to be very kind of big and lush and curvy in a different way from Russian River. I mean, you know, everything has its own thing, but it, it, there's a lot of kind of succulent fruit that's there. And a lot of colleagues de-stem the wine and, and the wines are beautiful. They're dramatic. They're dark. They're brooding. They're amazing. And that's one potential aesthetic that's, that's kind of there for the taking in Santa Rita Hills. The stem participation for us is a means of, of corseting some of that generosity. It kind of it corrals it, it frames it. And so, you know, it's almost like for me, anything that's round and rich in life, like, you know, it's like a sear on a jumbo scallop or a piece of ahi or a little brush of soy on, you know, on a piece of nigiri in a sushi bar 
or even nori on a sushi roll, it, it, it frames something that's softer and rounder, right? So the stems kind of lift the fruit, they brighten the fruit, there's a little spiciness aromatically. And then the mouthfeel of the wine is substantiated by the stems. The architecture is a derivative of the stems. And so that's really what we're doing. And then, you know, to eschew the employment of New Oak is just our, our style as well. You know, that I love, again, New Oak is awesome. It can lift. It, it, it too can kind of frame and corset the mm-hmm. fruit, right? right. Um, but for us, we're kind of arriving at that, if you will, from within our own system, from what the stems are bringing to the table. And then the neutrality of vessel, it just has always resonated with us. You know, and so our normal barrel age is like 15 to 25 years old. I mean, there are barrels that we're using now that, that held our 96 and 97 and 98. Mm-hmm. And there's almost a sentimental attachment that comes with time. Sure, you know, it's like yeah. a musician with an old instrument or right. a writer with an old pen or typewriter. You know, it's, there's intimacy with that, that I, I think, you know, it doesn't contribute immediately, obviously, to the wine. It doesn't get more neutral. Right. But there's a sentimental connection that shouldn't be overlooked, I don't think, either. As someone who has a typewriter and has been in many cellars <laughs> with old wood, I, I totally get... <laughs> Where you're coming from on that. You also mentioned vine material, though, going back to the, you know, how you're sort of exploring the Santa Rita Hills. And I know you prefer the UC Davis clone, that is the Mary Edwards clone Mm -hmm. that she popularized at her eponymous winery. Let's dig a little bit on that. First, explain clone. I like to say vine selection because clone means it's all coming from one plant technically, right? right? So vine selection, what goes into the process of saying, do you want a Dijon clone? Do you want an American heirloom clone? And then when you drill down the specific clone, and how does that match with terroir? Because isn't terroir supposed to be just the land speaking? And now you're saying, well, I'm going to give you a specific microphone to speak with. How does that all play out? Oh, for sure. I, I think there's a totality of circumstance that's important, you know, when, when someone references terroir, in my eyes anyway, obviously this could be debated for a million podcasts, mm-hmm. but, you know, there, there's site, there's place, there's spacing, all, all the different decisions that we're making along the way. You know, for me, I've been fortunate in that, you know, for 32 years, I've worked solely and singularly and devotedly in Santa Rita Hills, basically on this one road. <laughs> I'm a simple guy. I've a four-mile stretch of one road. And, you know, and, and I've, I've been exposed to, you know, 16, 18, 20 different clones along that road over the span of a couple of decades. And I'm, not, I'm not implying that I know it all, but I've been exposed to a lot of outcome and results. And it's just like an instrument. You know, some clones like really offer something awesome, like a piccolo or a tuba or a cymbal crack, like something very specific and singular and beautiful. Others are more like if you had one to choose, like that would be a good core kind of jack of all trades seems, you know, it's more than that, you know what I mean? So for us, you know, we're looking for, you know, something that's commercially viable. I mean, something that, you know, has a normal size crop because, you know, again, our, our area is, is, is pretty harsh in a lot of ways because of the ocean and the meek soils and no rain, et cetera. And then in the case of Brewer Clifton, you know, the clones on which we rely the most are kind of really bespoke for stem inclusion, so in the case of, of Mary's clone 37, clone 459 is another one. There's a kind of our two that clone, you know, Mary's is really our, our main go-to. They're kind of, you know, really nice holistic clusters and they hold the stems really well. And so that's a very appropriate fit for us. If someone were, you know, de-stemming and, and doing different things, you know, they might be kind of leaning towards or attracted to clones that have some spice or have some, you know, different kind of character. But for us, clones that are a little bit against the grain, they're not quite as common as others. And I've always wanted our wines to be relevant, right? So to kind of work with things that aren't as kind of out there, you know what I mean? It's not that they're better than anything else, but they're, they're very much us. And just like we've committed to the region, you know, those clones are also kind of very much part of our storyline.
I'm Wine Spectator Senior Editor and Special Projects Director James Molesworth, and you're listening to a bonus episode of Wine Spectator's Straight Talk Podcast, featuring my full interview with Santa Barbara County Pinot Noir star Greg Brewer of Brewer Clifton. For more California Pinot Noir coverage, check out Episode 12 of Straight Talk, which also includes my interview with Sonoma winemaking star Mark Aubert. And now, back to the second half of our interview with Greg Brewer. Let's talk about vintages as we move forward through the winemaking process here. One of the things you've mentioned to me about Santa Rita Hills is its consistency from year to year. And so you're kind of undermining my work because I'm trying to convince people that California vintages change from year to year. But you're in an area where it's really very consistent. Why is that? And, and what is the consistency? Yeah, it's very consistent where we are, you know, and I can honestly say in 32 years, you know, we've never really needed to pick because of adverse weather, you know, yes, some heat spikes, you know, a little rain here and there, but globally speaking, the consistency is really uncanny. And that's really a function of Santa Barbara, right? So, you know, we're in the Southern part of the state, right? And, and typically, you know, that is coupled with regularity, Right? That's why you go there for vacation or whatever, because you know it's going to be nice. But we have the cooling that the ocean brings, right? And so that's really an interesting juxtaposition of this kind of cool trend, which is normally linked to a little more erratic weather, but we have you know, predictable weather because we're Santa Barbara. You know, with that, there are, of course, differences, you know, but they're more finite than I think in a lot of other regions. You know, some, some vintages are a bit more kind of outgoing and the hand is more outstretched. You know, we do have cooler ones. You know, I'm thinking about like 9, 10, 11, you you know, a little more cloistered, a little quieter. But again, it's, it's, it's very, very fine. And I think that's one of the reasons why, in our case anyway, at Brewer Clifton, the wines are always raised the exact same, which isn't, isn't even logical. It doesn't really make sense. A lot of colleagues are like, well, that's not your role. Your role should be to kind of find the best of the right. vintage. For us, it's this very kind of monastic, submissive approach to the craft where it's about ritual and repetition because it would be so easy <laughs> to overshadow whatever variance was there. Hmm. Um, we, we'd prefer just to kind of do our normal Brooklyn protocol so that, you know, we're not doing anything to overshadow that minute difference in, in a growing season. Right. And of course, in, in the Northern California Pinot Noir regions, recent vintages have been very dramatically different lately, but wildfires, heat, wet years like we had uh, just this past winter. So I think what you're saying is that Santa Rita Hills gives you this perfect kind of canvas that you can play with and depending on proximity to the coast, and then you can kind of dial in your style and just really kind of nail that every year. Yeah. And that's, that's the crazy thing about it. I mean, I think people reference a lot the long growing season we have and high acid and, and those things, which is true. And that's great. Sometimes what's overlooked, however, is the aperture of picking opportunity, which is also vast when you reflect on other regions of the world. And, and again, not, not that it's better, it's just, it's huge. And so in any given year, you know, over the four mile span of our four vineyards, picking Pinot alone is like a five week window, which is extremely long. And so if the tendency of a producer is to, you know, kind of be on the front end of the season, it's great because you've still had a long season, you know, that the fruit is amply ripe. And then that outcome and that aesthetic is there, something kind of brighter and bingier and more assertive that way. The middle is always fine, obviously. And then even, you know, where I normally play is kind of middle and late, you know, in the season. And there too, you know, the octave of the fruit is a bit lower typically, but there's still freshness because of, again, the, the ocean proximity. So it's, it's a blessing a curse. I mean, you know, there's, it's like, what is Santa Rita Hills? I mean, the, the, the starting point can be so varied, but it's also such a beautiful thing because you can accomplish really anything you want to without time pressure, you know, so you can be very calm and composed with the upbringing and your, your picking selection and everything else. With the wildfires that affected 2020, my 
first suggestion is for folks to look to Santa Barbara because you guys didn't have the wildfire smoke in 2020. Do you think that Southern California Pinos have gotten into the same spotlight as Northern California yet? Or do you feel like there's still room to grow here? I think there's still room to grow. You know, I think in my 32 years, I've witnessed tremendous growth in Santa Barbara. And it's been very rewarding, very satisfying. You know, I'm so prideful of what we've all collectively been able to accomplish. And I still think we're younger. You know, we're starting off, we're kind of like next generation in some ways in California when reflecting on Napa and Sonoma and other things. And I think it's just time, you know, it's just time. And I think what I love about our region now is that there's been tremendous growth and there's still, there's still such a beautiful, like um, a really a myriad producers that are approaching this from all the different angles they are. So there's still tiny, awesome, deliberate, driven, small people borrowing part of a warehouse or a cellar, mm-hmm. two barrels, four barrels, six barrels. That's great. Kind of moderately successful, you know, business people that are kind of doing their own thing. There's, you know, significant wealth coming in, you know, and, and kind of those facilities and, and programs that are happening. There's some corporate investment, Foley family, Jackson family with me, of course. Um, there's European interest and in investment now. And it's also helpful to kind of buoy up and embolden our area because everyone has our own routes to market and connections and everything is appropriate, you know, to, to be in that cool, hip, little edgy wine bar in Brooklyn or wherever. And then also to have the access to kind of other kind of larger things for, you know, those people. And, and it's just, it's all helpful because it's all really important, I think, to kind of keep getting the name out. You know, of course, we all still have a long way to go and there's a lot of things to do, but I love when I'm traveling around the world. Santa Rita Hills is largely known, you know, in a lot of restaurants and, and wine stores. And that's, that's very, very gratifying because we mapped the Appalachian in the late 90s. We got approval in 01. So what, just barely over 20 years? And that's, you know, in wine years, that's like the opposite of dog years. That's like a second. Right. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and to roll in somewhere in like the Arctic Circle of Sweden or something, and there's like, you know, a Santa Rita Hills wine on a list. It's like, whoa, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Right. You talked about nostalgia. And now you're talking about the growth of the region, and that's obviously going to potentially come into conflict at some point, right? So let's talk about in 2017, you sold to Kendall Jackson, Mm -hmm. and I can imagine the eye rolling that went on out there, like, oh my God, another sellout. But you stayed, and your name is still on the label, and you're still making the wines. In retrospect, you seem pretty happy about it. I've never been happier. Yeah. The past six and a half years of my life have been, I've had some really good times. I've had some really dark times and some Mm -hmm. scary times. Um, And I've had some really good ones. What's really interesting is that you're right. I mean, at the beginning, you know, there's like, oh gosh, you know, and and even a lot of my friends, what are you doing now? Like, how long is your contract? What's your next gig? That kind of thing. And the wineries have never felt more mine. I've never been more intrinsically like embedded in these projects because now I'm working solely here. You know, in, in my history, I've, I've worked in, you know, different wineries in the neighborhood, not out of ego, out of a need to make a living. You know, Santa Barbara is not inexpensive. And so I've kind of pieced together different wineries historically. And once we all got together with Jackson family, you know, I'm just only there now. It's incredible to work in their service. And it's also a testament to their confidence and ownership and management, exec and family and everything else. You know, the, the wineries have, have never felt more mine. Um, I've never felt more independent. They refer to them as mine. And, and not even in jest. It's not even joking. I mean, they were like, oh, they're your, they're your wineries. Like, do your thing. And it's fascinating because within the company, 
you know, if anything, the wines are more Brewer Clifton than they've ever been because I always want to be additive. You know, I think about an octopus or something, you know, the different arms of an octopus. You know, we have beautiful Chardonnay and Pinot in our company, well, a lot of it, right? La Crema, KJ, Maggie Hawk, Grand Moraine, Giant Steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cardford Court with Just Stewart. I mean, we, we have right. a lot. And so if anything, like the stem inclusion and the clones we have in Santa Rita Hills, it encourages me to be even more out there. You know, I'm taking more risks than I ever did. And the wines have never been more kind of singularly Brewer Clifton in my eyes because, you know, I've got the support around me. I've got the confidence around me. I've got the appreciation around me. So I really drop my shoulders and the wines are raised with that kind of steady, confident hand because it's a beautiful stance to have at this stage of my uh, stage of my career. And it's also kind of a perfect storm because Jess and Barbara you know, 30 plus years ago, committed in a very significant way to Santa Barbara, you know, in Santa Maria and the Los Alamos Valley, you know, we have these trio of valleys where we are. And, you know, yes, I was the first kind of Santa Rita Hills horse for them in the race, so to speak. But like their loyalty and commitment to Santa Barbara is profound and not recent. (laughs) And so to link up their confidence in the area with my kind of, you know, espousing myself to the area, it's this really beautiful, synergistic, perfect storm. And I I couldn't be more excited. And, and, you know, I really hope, you know, this was my 28th year upcoming. I'd love to do 50. I think that would be really, that'd be cool. And then I want to end up in the tasting room. That's my (laughs) ultimate plan to be this like parabolic full circle, you know, give tours and tell stories about the good old days. Okay. But, but I, you know, I, I'm not going anywhere. And, and I, I've loved this craft from the day I started in the tasting room in 91. And I can earnestly say, I love my life even more now. It's incredible. You've got a very singular style. To your wines, you're working in a very sort of singular area. Uh, you're working with a grape that's adored by the consumer these days, Pinot Noir. You're traveling around a lot, and there are some headwinds these days economically for the wine industry. But from your perspective, what are you seeing out there? What's your general state of the industry view right now? The industry is tricky. You know, sales have never been easy, but they're exponentially more challenging than they were when I started. And I love sales. I mean, I'm on the road all the time and I I love straddling kind of production promotion back of the house, front of the house. It's always been my, you know, it's always really turned me on, you know, wines have never been better, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's, there's that, you know, there's a lot of them, you know, way more than before. There's obviously consolidation and different things that we've seen and attention span is also not quite what it was maybe 20, 30 years ago due to, you know, social media, phones, whatever. Not that it's bad, it's just a reality. And so I think for me anyway, the storytelling is the most important, you know, offering something that's relative where, you know, someone hears the story and kind of the intent behind something. And that storyline is really the most important, I think, for me right now on the road in wine sales so that, you know, because everything tastes good, right? So it's not about the what anymore, you know, it's about why it was raised in this fashion. And that's something that people can really kind of lean into and believe in and and be more kind of loyal to. You know, there's a a spirit of trial these days, too, in the marketplace that I've seen. So when we started, the mailing list situation was a bit different. You know, people would be loyal to a brand and they would just, you know, case a year, whatever the connection is. And now it's a lot more. Oh, that sounds cool. I'll try that. Oh my God, that sounds cool. I'll try that. Not that it's flippant, but I, I think that the spirit generationally is a little bit different than it was before. And so it's navigating that and anticipating that and then kind of celebrating that. You know? Yeah, it's, um, it's healthy competition out there right now. I mean, the, the diversity in the wine world is, is better than ever. Technically, it's more proficient than ever. Now it's about the authenticity and delivering 
in the bottle. Right. And, and, and keeping things again, as relevant as possible for me, I think about like Photoshop and auto tune and different things. Mm. Wines have ever been better, but the potential downside to that is things being homogeneous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like Photoshop and auto tune. So it's the confidence in self and in purpose to like the wabi-sabi of something, you know, that note deliberately out of tune, that hair that's kind of out of place, the wrinkle in his shirt, like that's mm-hmm. the hook and, and not to over-polish and over-correct and to kind of have the, the confidence, again, in, in kind of where you are and what you're doing and the reason why you're doing it, most importantly, and conveying that as clearly and succinctly as possible to others to kind of also buy into your story. Yeah. Greg Brewer, Brewer Clifton Wines, 28 vintages in, 22 to go, and then you can go back to the tasting room. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for joining yeah, us on Straight Talk. parties, tours, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Don't forget to check out the full episode 12 for much more California Pinot Noir coverage, including my interview with Sonoma star Marco Bear. Got questions, comments, or feedback for us? Email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. As always, you can follow Wine Spectator on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.